Last week, we began a new series, which we've entitled Make It Count. And uh, the series is based on the book of Philippians. The letter to Philippians, we said, was written by Paul from a prison in Rome. And he's writing it to the Philippian congregation about 10 years after he was instrumental in planting this church. We said the overriding theme of Philippians is joy, which we find interesting since Paul is imprisoned and facing huge difficulties and hardship, perhaps even death, when writing this letter. And so Paul is modeling here for a a very strong message for us, for them, and his message is simply this. If we are willing to adopt a make-it-count life attitude in our relationship with Jesus, we'll experience joy when life does not turn out like we had planned. Joy is not based on external circumstances. Joy is not based on emotions. Joy is found in believing that God will take the most painful seasons of our lives and bring something good out of those seasons. Now, last week we considered that a make-it-count approach to faith creates what we called authentic community, a community of faith where we put others above ourselves, where we love everyone in the community, even those who are difficult to love, and where we pray for each other for a variety of different things, wanting the best for each and every one. The movie Patch Adams was released in 1998, and uh, in one of the scenes, Patch has checked himself in to a mental health ward for suicide watch because he's severely depressed. While he's there, he encountered one of the patients and discovered that he's a famous scientist. And so at a later moment, Patch visits one-on-one with this man to try to discover the answer to a riddle that the man had asked him previously and, and he couldn't seem to find the solution to. So I just want us to watch that encounter this morning. Some powerful advice there because a make it count approach to our faith helps us gain a different perspective to see things different than how we would normally see them. And so today what I want us to do for a short period of time is consider what Paul tells us about perspective. What Paul teaches us here specifically about how a make-it-count approach to faith can impact how we view and respond to our circumstances. So we're still in chapter 1 of Philippians. We're going to be looking at the next section, which is verses 12 to 26. If you have your Bible, you can follow along there. I'm just going to read this morning in the interest of time, verses 19 to 21. It says, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage 
so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The first thing I want us to see here as Paul walks through this passage is to look at opportunities. A make-it-count approach to faith impacts how we view, how we see opportunities. If you, if you notice in your text, you'll see that Paul begins this section with these words. Now, I want you to know. I want you to know. This is an important statement. He's referring to what has happened to him. And it's very likely that this statement is not a reference to his imprisonment in general. In fact, the language here suggests that something specifically has recently happened to him while he was already in prison. We're not told what it is that's changed. In fact, there's varying opinions. Some scholars believe that perhaps he's been moved to a new location or he's been placed in a more intimidating environment, but we really, really don't know. We just know that something has happened. And whatever it is that's happened is being viewed by the church, by fellow believers, as bad news. They believe it's bad news. It's causing anxiety amongst them, perhaps even misunderstanding among these these fellow believers. They're looking at this and they're thinking, this is not good. From their perspective, things have gotten significantly worse. Now, whatever the recent developments were, Paul wants them to know that they are not detrimental. In fact, he says, whatever this is that has happened has served to advance the gospel. The word advanced here means to prepare the way. It's, it's linked to the idea that when, and of course you got to understand, this is in the Roman Empire, when, when Rome's armies were going forward and conquering lands, and they would send a team of engineers into a territory ahead of the arrival of the army, and they would clear an area so that when the army came in, they could fight and they could, they could advance uh, on the army that is existing there. And so what Paul is saying here is this, he's telling the church, he's telling fellow believers that my circumstances, whatever it is that's happened to him, he says it's actually clearing the way. It's creating an opportunity for the gospel to be advanced and preached. His increasing hardship has increased the potential of sharing the gospel. Paul had a desire for many years to preach the gospel of Jesus in Rome. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 19 and Romans chapter 1, he comes right out and he says it right there. That's what he's longing for. That's what he's looking forward to. That's his ultimate goal, to get to Rome. Because Rome was the primary city of his time. It's the hub of the Roman Empire. And so from a ministry perspective, it held incredible potential to reach possibly even millions of people. And so Paul intended to go there as a preacher of the gospel. But he ended up there not as a preacher, he ended up there as a prisoner. 
And the journey to getting there was a very interesting and difficult one. In Acts chapter 21, we see that he's falsely accused, which results in an illegal arrest. Two years later, he's sent to Rome by Caesar. While he's en route to Rome, we read in Acts chapter 22nd, 27th rather, that it, he records a, a shipwreck. So he's on his way to Rome. There's a shipwreck. And now Paul spends three months on the island of Malta. And finally, he's transferred to Rome. And now he's waiting for trial. This is not how Paul envisioned it when he longed to go to Rome. When he made, the, 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 you know, made it known to those he was writing to, I can't wait to get to Rome, this is not what he had in mind. In fact, most people looking at Paul's life would consider that this whole scenario is a failure. It's a failure, but not Paul. His make-it-count approach to faith caused him to see his circumstances as an opportunity. He's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. Every six hours, a new one would rotate in. Now, this has gone on for quite a while. And there's no evidence of self-pity here. He's taking every opportunity, every moment to share the gospel. And he says it's become clear to him that he's in chains for Jesus. And even the guards have recognized that this is no ordinary captive. This is no ordinary man. There's something different about this prisoner. And that difference is his make-it-count approach to his relationship with Jesus. And word of him has spread throughout the palace guard. And he says, not only the guards, but everyone else. Everyone who comes and goes and works in these quarters has become aware of Paul's attitude that he is in chains for Jesus. And so, he, although he's falsely accused, although there, it's been a long imprisonment, although getting to Rome turned out different than he planned, Paul is seeing his circumstances as an opportunity. He was able to preach the gospel in Rome. He was able to get the message outside the prison walls. Now, not only has Paul's perspective impacted those in the palace guard, we're told that it has emboldened other believers in Rome to preach the truth with authority. Now, you might expect Paul's situation to push believers underground, to cause them to dampen their efforts and go into hiding because if this could happen to Paul, you know, we're next, so let's, let's bunker down and, and disappear. But the opposite's happening. They're observing Paul's make-it-count approach to faith, and in doing so, it has caused them to be encouraged. And they've laid their fears aside, and it says they spoke the word of God boldly. Now, the word speak here is really interesting. The word speak is not to stand like I am in front of you today and, and, and yell at you. Apparently, my wife said last week my microphone was loud and I yelled at everybody all morning. I'm really sorry. I wasn't yelling. I'm just loud by nature. And if they amp that, then 
I'm really mad then when I'm not even mad. That's not what it means. It means everyday conversation. Everyday conversations. The circumstances of their lives have not lessened. The danger had not lessened. But their courage to share the truth had increased. And they're sharing the faith in their everyday conversations as they're living out their lives. The second thing Paul talks about is opposition. A make-it-count approach to faith impacts how we see, how we view opposition. Now, while it's clear that Paul faced opposition to the gospel from Roman authorities, after all, he's in prison for it, it's also clear that it's not the only opposition he faced. In fact, in Rome, we're told, the churches were divided. The leaders had their own individual agendas. And so Paul identifies two groups of believers, believers, church members in this section, and he responds to each of them. Not all of the preachers in Rome had the right motives. Paul said some of them are preaching out of envy. They're preaching out of rivalry. They wanted larger followings. They, they wanted a greater appearance of success. They wanted to be recognized for their efforts. And they're envious of Paul. They're envious of his success. They're envious of his overwhelming support. Perhaps they once held prominence, but now their prominence has been eclipsed by Paul. We, we don't know, but we know that they're envious. And now they're taking advantage of Paul's imprisonment to advance themselves by stirring up discord in the church. Now, they most likely expected Paul to resent their success, resent the appearance of how they were gaining popularity. But they clearly didn't understand how great a man of character he was. It's clear that Paul does not have an issue with their theology. He doesn't disagree with their doctrine. He doesn't have issue with their set of beliefs. His issue is with their character. His issue is with their integrity as leaders. And his response is really amazing and surprising and hard to know what to do with sometimes when you look at it. He goes, but what does it matter? What does it matter? The gospel is being preached to unbelievers. People are coming to Jesus. The gospel in itself, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, far outweighed Paul's personal considerations. And so even though these circumstances are less than ideal, he believes in the power of the gospel. Even though those who preach it are lacking in pure motives. He finds joy in knowing that in the middle of all of that, there are people who are coming to Jesus. There was a great work to be done, not just despite his circumstances, but through his circumstances. Yes, there were those who opposed him, but there were also fellow believers who are standing with him. 
out of their love in the midst of all of this opposition. And they want to do their part in seeing the gospel prevail. And so they're praying for Paul. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, they provided for him. And this gives him hope that he will accomplish and achieve all he desires despite the circumstances. And he makes this really bold statement. He says, listen, whether I'm set free from prison or set free from this life, I'm okay either way. Because he's looking forward to the day when he stands before the Lord, the righteous judge. And so he views his opposition differently. Thirdly and finally, he views outcomes differently. A make it approach, make it count approach to faith impacts how we see or view or prioritize outcomes. Paul is convinced that his present circumstances are for the purpose of kingdom outcomes. This is all about the kingdom. And Paul recognizes that whether he gets to live or die, it's out of his hands. He can't control that. He is at the mercy of the Roman government. And if they put him to death, he dies. If they let him live, he lives. He can't control his circumstances. Well, he can control his attitude in them, but he can't control the outcome. In fact, he says, if he could control the outcome, he's not sure which outcome he'd pick. I mean, how frustrating is that? The poor old saints are back in the church praying to God that, that Paul gets out, and he's going, yeah, I don't know if I'd pick that. I don't know if I'd pick that. He says, I'm, I'm torn. I'm torn. Now, the word torn here probably means a little different than being ripped in half, putting, you know, one piece, one place, and one another. The word torn here means to be experiencing pressure from both sides so that you can't really move in either direction. You're kind of stuck in the middle. He knows the situation is in God's hands. And so his ultimate desire is for God to be glorified either way. Regardless of the outcome, he has every reason to expect spiritual victory. And so he said, I eagerly expect, I eagerly hope that I'll in no way be ashamed. Now, those two things, expect and hope, mean the same, it's the same concept. It's like when you're really interested in something and you lean in to get a closer look. Stretching your head forward, looking with concentration on your goal, ignoring the distractions of your surroundings, being focused, locked in. He says, I'm focused, I'm, I'm locked in. Whether I'm appearing before the Roman authorities or whether I appear before God himself, either way, I'm not going to be ashamed. He says to live as Christ. If I'm found not guilty and consequently set free, well, great, then that'll be an opportunity for me to continue my labor for Jesus. The word labor means hard work, physical hardship, spiritual anguish. The season after potential deliverance will continue to be difficult. If he's set free, it's not going to get easy. But he's ready for it. But he says, that's not going to stop me. If given the opportunity, I'm just going to keep going, regardless of the hardship. 
His personal faith is unshaken. He's serving Jesus, and serving Jesus is everything to him. It's the motive of his actions. It's the goal of his ministry. It's the source of his strength. And he says, I have sufficient courage. I have confidence that the Holy Spirit is going to help me give a testimony. In fact, Paul believed a miracle was going to happen. That his ministry among them would continue. It hadn't happened yet. Yet Paul believed that despite where he was and despite being comfortable whichever way it went, he believed that it wasn't finished yet. And it did happen. And history allows us to see that. That he was actually released from this actual imprisonment that we're talking about here. And he did continue his ministry for a while. To live is Christ, he says. Well, but to die, well, that's gain. Because if by chance they find me guilty, and if by chance they execute me and take my life, I'm going to be with Jesus. So dying for Paul was not a tragedy. In fact, he said, I desire to depart. I long for the day when I'll get to see Jesus and realize the goal of my life. His make-it-count approach to faith changed and impacted how he viewed outcomes. Now, as I reflect on Paul's make-it-count approach to faith and how it impacted his perspective throughout this passage, I'd like to highlight a few implications for us as we are attempting to make a make-it-count approach to faith a part of our lives. The first thing I want us to look at is role reversal. Paul begins, we said with the words, now I want you to know. He's setting out from the beginning to establish a proper perspective on his circumstances. But we need to note, he's the one who's imprisoned. He's the one who's potentially facing death. He's the subject of the attack of fellow ministers of the gospel. Yet, he's the one who takes the initiative to help fellow believers have a proper make-it-count perspective. Now, ideally, it should be them. But that's not how it works. A make-it-count approach to faith is sometimes difficult because those of us in the midst of hardship find ourselves helping others gain the right perspective. And it's somewhat ironic that those needing comfort, those who need support, find themselves comforting and supporting others. I've seen this so many times. Someone loses a loved one. Someone meets them for the first time since they lost the loved one. They're broken, they're sad, and the one who has lost the loved one is consoling the person with the news that it's going to be okay. 
Or someone's been diagnosed with a significant health diagnosis and it's difficult to accept. It's mind-blowing. You can't believe it. You're crushed. You're broken. And you, you, you see that person and when you come up to them, all of a sudden you, you find yourself confronting that person who's finding out the news, who's trying to cope with what it is that's been diagnosed in you and you find yourself convincing them that it's going to be okay. <laughs> That's how it goes. We find ourselves helping others. We find comfort. And in the process, we find comfort and we find strength ourselves. Part of a make it count approach to faith is those of us who should be on the receiving end find ourselves on the giving end and that's quite all right. In fact, it's good. Because to have a make it account approach It's important that the support goes both ways. And when we who have been wounded, we become then the wounded healers for those who need to be encouraged and strengthened. The second implication, big picture. Something we said had changed in Paul's circumstances that from the outside appeared to be detrimental. Paul assures them that it's not the case because it's actually increased his opportunities. Now, sometimes we find ourselves in a difficult and painful situation. And my experience is that these times do not come in single shots. They come in multiples. Do you ever notice that? How many times have we said, how much more? They don't come in single shots. They come in multiples. We are experiencing what we already feel is too much, too much to bear, too much to accept, too much to deal with. And then something else gets added to our pain. And when this happens, we most often view this additional pain negatively. It was already bad enough. How much more will I have to face? But we see that Paul didn't respond that way. He saw the new challenge as a new opportunity for God to demonstrate his faithfulness in his life. And this is what I've learned myself and in walking with others is that sometimes the change that we fear is actually a part of God's process of working in our situation and we just can't see it yet. Like, God, why in the world would you allow this? Because you can't see that it's part of it. Sometimes God answers our prayers just like we ask. Sometimes. But most often, God responds different than we expected. Why? Because he sees the big picture. If I were God, I would do things differently. And all of our lives would be a disaster. Paul got to Rome. But more painful and very different than he ever expected. It's important in a make it 
account approach to faith to trust the faithfulness of God. That he is going to take each of the ongoing circumstances, the ones we don't even want or want to acknowledge are there that we're going through, and somehow he's able to knit them together into something significant for his kingdom and for our lives. And so we have to trust the big picture by trusting the faithfulness of God. Thirdly, responsibility. When we're experiencing painful circumstances in our lives, often a great deal of our time gets invested in trying to understand how we got here in the first place and whose fault it is. Who's responsible? What's responsible for me getting here? Now, that has that process has some value to it, right? Because if you always do what you've always done, you'll always have what you always had, right? Definition of insanity, doing the same thing, expecting a different result. If we don't look at how we got here, we're probably going to be back here again. So that has some value. It has importance. But when trying to figure all these things out, when trying to assess blame and responsibility begins to take over and become a priority, that becomes very unhealthy in our lives. Paul didn't assess the blame. He didn't provide explanation for his painful reality. You meet so many people and they want to give you a theological explanation for why what's happening is happening. Sometimes just bad stuff happens. But he made the most of it. And he focused on what his responsibility was. Not who was responsible, but what is my responsibility while I'm into this significant, painful season? What is it, God, that you would have me to do? Not who is responsible, but what is my responsibility? And he simply stated that his responsibility in the midst of this was to allow God to work through him. God desires to use our circumstances for the benefit of others, for the benefit of our personal growth and being formed into the image of Jesus, for the benefit of building his kingdom. And if we adopt a make-it-account approach to our faith, God will use our circumstances to lift others up as he did with Paul. And accomplish great things as he did with Paul. And to do great things in us like he did with Paul. Adopting a make-it-account approach to our faith will create opportunities for everyday conversations with others about the truth of Jesus. As we're going about our lives, as we're encountering people, as we're sharing with them that, yes, this is my reality, but let me tell you about the faithfulness of God in the midst of this. Let me tell you why I'm not in a dark room in my house wallowing in my pain, but I can lift my head and live my life and do something. It's because of Jesus. Our testimony of the faithfulness of God in our lives. God working through our painful ordeals. That's our responsibility. That's our focus. Fourthly, there's only about 18 of these, so we're, we're good. 
inside attacks. Paul's struggles were not only linked with those who opposed the gospel. Some of the most significant attacks came from other believers. Sometimes our opposition is from the outside. But often our opposition comes from within. From those that we trust the most. From those that we least expect it from. Those closest to us. Our spouse. Our children. A good friend. A fellow follower of Jesus. Outside attack is easier to accept, I think. When a stranger hurts us, attacks us, says things to us, does things to us, it's harder. It's not as hard as when we feel the betrayal of those who are closest to us. Whether the attack is from the outside the ranks of family or faith or from within the ranks of family or faith, we need to understand, and this is really important, that ultimately all attacks are from the enemy. That's really important. The Bible tells us our battle is not with flesh and blood. Sometimes we think our battle is with our spouse. And that's a significant battle sometimes. Unless you're married to the most amazing woman in the world. Throwing you a bouquet. Happy early Valentine's. In case I forget on the 14th of February. Your battle is not with your spouse. When you're fighting with your kids. When you're dealing with problems in their lives. When they're rebellion and they're hard. You're not fighting with them. There's a battle that is bigger beyond them. When your problems with your employer or your friend, ultimately the battle is with the enemy who wants to destroy us, destroy our families, destroy our marriages, destroy our kids, our livelihoods. And so let's not miss it. Yes, we hold people accountable. Yes, words and actions are coming off the lips and off off the lives of people around us. But ultimately, it is the enemy of our soul who directs and informs. And it's really hard when the enemy is using someone you committed your life to, someone that you trust, someone that you walk with, someone who says they love the same Jesus as you. It's so sad when they're the ones who hurt you. It's sad. It's hard. But the enemy is bigger than that. I try to teach young pastors. They don't listen as much as I did when I was young. I think they do. But I try to tell them to not take ministry attack personally. And they look at me like, you have two really big heads. And I'm like, no, you need to understand. That person would treat whoever is in your position of authority the exact same way. You just happen to be the one that's there. Because there's an issue that's bigger. Our perspective on opposition changes when we make, live a make-it-count approach to faith. It doesn't hurt any less. 
Let's not kid ourselves. We're not any less disappointed. But we can see it for what it is. And in doing so, we can decide whether or not we're going to allow the opposition in our lives to destroy us or make us stronger. Because whatever happens, when we put our trust in Jesus, we're going to be okay in the end. We're ultimately going to be okay. Number five, faithful support. Paul acknowledged how important the prayer and financial support was to him as he faced the challenging circumstances before him. Even though he's alone in prison, he knew that there were people out there who cared about him, who were praying for him, and were giving generously to make his life more bearable. May I suggest this morning that it's critically, it is critically important when we are going through a difficult time to have a church family, to have a faith community that we can lean on, that we can depend on, and we can receive support from. And so within our community of faith, we, our goal is to encourage one another, to lift each other up, to pray for each other, to forgive each other, to financially assist each other. I want you to know, I regularly receive encouragement from members of this faith community. My faith community. I regularly do. And I know many of you have experienced the same. Because it means so much to know that others are standing with us. And so we need to tell others that we're praying for them and with them. That we appreciate them. We need to tell people that more. I mean, we're just, we're more prone to, there's ten things. I like eight of them. I don't like two. Let me talk to you about the two. No, let's for a while talk about the eight. Or if there's eight bad things about you. I don't know. But there's two good things. Let's talk about the two. Encourage. Appreciate. Ask how people are doing. Are you okay? Send a meal at challenging times or offer other practical care. I've had people say to me and to others, well, let me know if you need anything. Guess what? I'm not going to let you know. I'm not. Yeah, excuse me, uh, Mark, could you make me spaghetti for dinner tonight? It's a busy day. I'm not going to tell you. Most of us are not. And if we are, then there's probably a bigger problem. We're not. So I say to people, listen, if you feel to do something, just do it. But if you're going to sit there and wait for me to prompt you, not going to happen. Although technically that's kind of what I'm doing right now. If you feel that you should want to do something, just do something. Don't wait. Just do it. Offer practical care. Just do it. Let's continue to grow in our expression of support for one another in every regard. And number six, finally, Paul's wave after wave. Paul said, if I'm released from this prism circumstance, I'm going to continue to labor from the Lord. Release from this present circumstance will, mean, will not mean smooth sailing in the future. Painful 
life circumstances are like waves. Some are bigger than others, but they just keep rolling. You know, you ever been to the beach and you're waiting for the big one and you're counting like every fourth wave or whatever it is, is the bigger one, right? You count them out and you wait them out. Some are bigger than others, but they just keep rolling. For over 30 years of ministry, Jennifer and I have jokingly said to each other, most weeks, (laughs) if we can just get through this week, next week's going to be so much better. And we laugh because we know that that's not true. (laughs) Every week is waiting with its own challenges and realities. Another wave is coming. That's life. When I was growing up, we didn't own a car until I turned 17. And I was the proud owner of a Mercury Bobcat, 1973. You might know the Ford Pinto version. Beautiful. 17-year-old sports car. Not. My parents didn't drive. Never owned a car. Always owned a boat. We had our priorities right. A boat was part of our livelihood. Sometimes there was more than one. Part of our livelihood. It was part of life. I grew up on the water. I grew up in boats. I love the water. I love boats. Money can't buy you happiness, but can buy you a boat. About 13 years ago, we had an opportunity to buy a boat as a family. A little 14 and a half footer, could fast as the wind. And it was amazing because there was something about it that even though we had bad attitude teenagers and a little kid, somehow when we got on that boat, it was just something that everybody wanted to do. It was fantastic. Until the day I realized, how come our boat is so much smaller? Well, it wasn't. It's just, we just, the kids grew up and there was too many of us in a little boat. I remember one time we were up on Balsam Lake and for some reason I was out on the boat with the three kids, just me and the kids. And uh, they wanted to go fishing. And so I, I found a spot that I thought would be good for fishing. I'm not an expert at fishing. So I found the spot that I thought was good, and I thought, I don't want to be, you know, drifting off this area, so I'm going to throw the anchor over and tie the boat off, and we're just going to fish here, and it's a beautiful day and, you know, a beautiful evening and, you know, whatever. Afternoon is wonderful. But Balsam Lake is a big lake. And when you're on a big lake, storms can come up really fast and they can get really rough on a lake that size. And so we're fishing away and all of a sudden a storm came in and the waves are beating against the boat and the anchor is not dragging because it's hooked in a rock behind. And so instead of the boat riding the waves, the rope is actually holding it and the waves are coming in over. And my kids are screaming and yelling. Now you need to understand, our family, I always say, we should have lived in Stratford with the amount of drama there is in our home, okay? Like, we should have lived just next door to the theater. There's drama. We're going to drown. The water's coming in. And you feel like just tossing somebody out just to, right? And so, you know, I took charge, and I'm, they're scared, and I'm pulling on the rope, but I can't get the anchor in. And to be honest, in those moments, you start to feel it yourself because, Okay, here's rule number one of boating. It's best when the water is outside of the boat. Not good when it starts getting inside the boat. And I'm panicking. I can't get it, and I can't get it untied. And so then I thought, I reached in the toolbox, I grabbed the knife, and I cut the rope, and all I could think of is, 
Oh, there's 50 bucks gone. (laughs) But the minute I cut the rope, the boat began to ride on the waves. Sometimes we are so anchored to the pain of our present circumstances that when the next storm comes and the next waves start beating on us, we are overcome and we drown because we are so anchored to that pain. We own it, we've earned it, and we're tied to it. We must never anchor ourselves to our circumstances, define ourselves by our circumstances, allow our circumstances to define who we are, what we're worth, what our future is, because waves will come. They're going to come. More are coming. That's the good news. There's more coming. And you need to be ready to ride out the next wave no matter how intimidating and threatening it is. Folks, hard times follow hard times. Heartache follows heartache. Loss follows loss. Pain follows pain. Disappointment follows disappointment. Cheer up, it's going to get worse. That's my Tony Robbins speech this morning. But it doesn't stop us when we put our trust in Jesus. Because with him, we can face the storm head on and rise above it. Yeah, the waves are going to come. But don't get so tied down to your pain that it's what is the end of you. I'm going to invite the worship team back. A make-it-count approach to our faith helps us gain a different perspective in challenging times because it impacts how we view and respond to our circumstances. It impacts our perspective on our opportunities, on our opposition, on our outcomes. But if we are willing to adopt a make-it-count attitude in our relationship with Jesus. It's going to impact our perspective. And we're going to experience joy when life doesn't turn out at all like we planned. That's what Paul is trying to show us here. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. And as Tyler and the worship team leads us, if you're here this morning and you'd like someone to pray with you, encourage you, we're going to ask you to come and give us that opportunity to pray with you and encourage you this morning. Maybe you want to worship just right where you are, pray where you are. Maybe you want to come around here somewhere and just find a place by yourself. You can do that. But allow God by His Spirit to strengthen you and change your perspective this morning.